Last weekend, my family and I uh, went to Western New York to visit some family and uh, some friends, some good friends out there. And on Sunday, we did an out. Last Sunday, we did an outing to Niagara Falls, and we stayed on the U.S. side. Uh, but as you probably know, Niagara Falls has been a, a, a magnet for many risky stunts over the years. So for years, people have gone over in barrels. People have gone over in inflatable things. Tightrope walkers have, have strung a cable across the gorge to walk across. One guy even uh, took, a, took a jet ski and shot out over the falls, and the thought was he would then parachute down. I don't think it worked out quite that well for him. But a number of these like crazy, risky things people do there. And if I'm honest with you, uh, I'm, I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm good. I like to live. I, I, I like to stay on, on firm, solid ground. And so I didn't really attempt anything risky out there last weekend as we visited. In fact, as we we're kind of walking around the grounds and you, you, know, you get onto the little bridge that takes you to the elevator, that takes you down. We did go on the boat, the Mia the Miss boats, so we had to get down there. And even, even on that, I was a little sketchy. Like, okay, let's stay over here, well out away from the rail. Uh, so I'm just not wired for that. It's probably kind of bad form anyway to take bit, big risks. I got a wife and a couple kids. Like, you know, that's probably, probably not worth it for me. I did manage, however, on Tuesday uh, to capsize a kayak with my daughter out on Seneca Lake, and so uh, that was thrilling for a few moments. We did make it back safely with a little help, but that is a story to tell for sure. But I look back over what's been my pretty much low-risk life in that sense, and it, it occurs to me that anything that felt remotely risky, and now I'm not talking about risking life and limb, but anything that felt remotely risky was driven by faith most of the time. And so I'm not talking about those sorts of stunts, of course, because God called me to do it or something like that, but I'm talking about, for example, things that felt relationally risky. You know, maybe trying to move conversations from casual to spiritual with friends or coworkers or neighbors. My faith in Christ and my faith in his power and his, his kingdom has, has taken me to places in this world that some might think of as risky or, or unsafe, places with extreme poverty, places with a history of violence or unrest. And I didn't necessarily feel unsafe there, but some might look at those places and feel that way. And as you think about your life, maybe you resonate with some of this. Maybe you also have taken some relational risks. Maybe out of a desire to share your faith with others, you've, you've tried to move those conversations into some more meaningful territory, more profound spiritual territory. Maybe you too have traveled, traveled to impoverished communities to share the love of Christ driven by your faith in Christ. Maybe you've even taken professional risks, you know, standing up for what is good or true or ethical or righteous, no matter the cost that might come your way. So again, not talking about stupid or foolish things, but 
talking about our faith driving us to do things that are out of our comfort zone. Well, my wife and I were part of uh, Churches in the Vineyard movement for a number of years, and John Wimber, who was one of the early leaders of the Vineyard movement in the 80s and early 90s, was famous for saying that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. In, in other words, faith will necessarily, at times for us, involve some kind of stepping out on a limb, some level of doing what feels uncomfortable. And so I ask you, what has your faith caused you to do that may have felt uncomfortable? What risks has it led you into? Well, our text this morning in Joshua 2 highlights a risky faith. It's the story of the faith of a a Gentile, a a Canaanite, probably marginalized, perhaps broken woman named Rahab. But her story is enshrined for us forever for God's people to honor and to remember in God's word. And so I think her faith is worth us kind of looking at, analyzing, dissecting. Because the question is, what kind of faith would compel us to do risky things? Uncomfortable things. You know, when our lives collide with the true God of heaven and earth, what kind of faith comes out of that experience? So this morning we're going to unpack the story of Rahab. And we're going to see at least three things about her faith that might help us make sense of our own faith experience. And the first is that her faith is a genuine response It's a genuine response to evidence, to testimony, to things that she was hearing and even observing. But secondly, and importantly, her faith is active. It's not just intellectual belief without action. It's risky. The third thing that we see is that her faith is transformative. Her whole life has changed, as we see from the rest of the testimony of Scripture. And so as we look at this remarkable story, as we look at Rahab, and as we think about our own hearts and our own journey and our own faith, let us first pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, as we come to this remarkable story, pray that by your spirit you would help us and empower us to think about our own lives, to think about our own walk with you. God, would you empower us, even through your word, as we look at it, that you would Empower us to live a wholehearted life of faith. And so, God, would you open our hearts and our minds in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So, quick background. We finally got into the book of Joshua last Sunday, looking at Joshua 1. And where we pick up the story is the Israelites are right on the doorstep of Canaan. Canaan, this this land that was promised to Abraham and to uh, their ancestors generations before And so early in the book of Joshua, the people are camped on the east side of the Jordan River after God has has helped them to defeat these people groups and these small kingdoms that many of which were resistant to their advances. And so God has helped them defeat the Amorites and other pagan peoples who occupied that area east of the Jordan. And so Joshua here is in charge now. He's taken over from Moses And Joshua sends out two spies. He sends two spies to the city of Jericho 
on a reconnaissance mission of sorts. Jericho is this important city just on the other side of the Jordan River. And so if, if, if Israel could take the city of Jericho with its fortified walls, it would be an important foothold in taking that land. And so these spies, they're sent out to go get a feel for what's going on over there, to check out the walls, to feel like, figure out what the vibe is with that people at that place. And so these spies, they go and they enter the home of Rahab. Rahab is a harlot. She's a prostitute. She's one who sold her body. And that's certainly an interesting choice for two men of Israel to go stay. But it certainly adds to the drama. So why would they choose such a place? Why would these spies choose this place? Well, it sort of makes sense if you think about it. Because her place of business, her home, her inn, whatever it may have been, would have often had men coming and going. Oftentimes, foreign men coming and going from that place. And so they use that as sort of cover on their recon mission. And so here, this, this, the two spies, they're, they're in her home. And as the story unfolds, we see the nature of her faith. And the first thing that we encounter is that Rahab's faith is a genuine response. She's had information, testimony. She's hearing stories. She's observing things. And it fuels her faith in Israel's God. Look at verses 8 through 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So Rahab and other residents of Jericho, they've heard plenty of things. They've heard testimony. So she has information. There's evidence that this God and his people are on the move. Maybe word had gotten around with merchants who were traveling through that city. Or maybe she heard you know, chatter among the men that came to her establishment. And in our own lives, in our own journey, it's completely acceptable to consider the evidence, to bring our reason, to bring our just desire to try to understand to the table on our journey toward faith and along the journey of faith. Two of the pieces that many of us have to wrestle with on that journey, for example, are the reliability of Scripture, this God's word that we preach from every Sunday here and teach from throughout our ministries. Another one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the single historical event that the whole thing hangs on. Without that, our faith is useless, said Paul. And there's strong evidence here for a wholehearted belief. For example, we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament that date from within just a few years or decades of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
course, many of those writers in the New Testament were eyewitnesses of Christ or associates of Christ, or they were close to eyewitnesses of Christ and his ministry. The New Testament is far and away the best attested of all ancient writings that we have. Of course, those original apostles, those followers of disciples of Christ, many of them laid down their lives for this message of the risen Christ. And then, of course, in the centuries and millennia since their time, hundreds of thousands of believers have done the same for the sake of the gospel. Of course, the resurrection of Christ has strong scientific and historical support, and very few scholars anymore are arguing about the theories that it couldn't or didn't happen. So there's evidence. The information is important. Maybe it's been important for you in your journey. But there's also stories. There's also testimonies. There's also real-life people who have encountered Jesus, and you've seen that in them. Or you are that for someone else. You hear the stories of how God has healed or restored or transformed. So evidence does matter. It, it helps kind of make some of this more compelling. But at the end of the day, what do we see? It's faith. It's Rahab's faith. Rahab heard the reports of the mighty works of God for his people, but she still had to make a response of genuine faith to what she was seeing, seeing and hearing and observing to risk her life in this way. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a friend who's a very logical, rational, and admittedly even skeptical person in many ways. And he's, he's read some of the popular apologetic kind of Christian resources that are, are very helpful, but they present some of the best evidence that we have for belief. But my friend, you know, he still struggles with the miracles. He still struggles with Scripture and the story and what it all means. And can we believe it? And, of course, I try to listen and I try to understand, but, you know, in the conversation as we're driving along together, he kind of beats me to the punch, which is that this all requires faith. But the evidence helps. The evidence compels but that can't accomplish faith in us. God does use all that in our journey toward embracing him, surrendering to him, following him. But we still have to come to that place of the end of our own understanding and the beginning of the vastness of God and the mystery of his ways and his word. Some of you in the room this morning are listening online. Maybe that's a line, if you will, to cross even today. So if you're exploring faith, have you considered the evidence? Have you considered the testimonies, the stories? Have you asked others about their own journey and what they've experienced of God? Or maybe if you've been walking with God for some time, like I know many of you have, but maybe your faith is kind of waning or struggling are you asking God to bring to mind those special things that you've seen and encountered and witnessed that have been a great encouragement to you? Throughout God's word, there's reminders to remember what God has done. 
And so Rahab takes to heart what she has heard and seen and observed. And Rahab doesn't choose to fear like the rest of that city was. Instead, she aligns herself by faith with the Lord of heaven and earth. And so her faith is a genuine response first. Her faithful response to what she had seen and heard becomes her on-ramp into the covenant people of God. But her faith is also active. That's her second point. Back up a little bit to look at verses 4 through 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, the two spies, And she said to the messengers from the king of Jericho, who he sent to her, she said to them, Yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So certainly Rahab takes a risk, doesn't she? She tells these messengers from the king, oh, they've gone a different direction. So she sort of shakes them off the trail. She redirects them. And then Rahab talks to these spies who she's harboring in her place, her home, her establishment. And she shares this confession of faith that we just read about, that your God is Lord of heaven and earth, she says to them. And then they make a deal. Rahab and the spies make a deal that her life and the lives of her household members would be saved, would be preserved when this conquest, which was inevitable, was going to happen. So they make an oath, and then in verses 15 and 16 we read, So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. And so we definitely have to appreciate the risk in this story. Right, because Rahab, as these messengers from the king come to her, if they detected anything fishy, anything off, anything suspicious, it's safe to assume that this marginalized woman who literally lived on the wall of the city could be snuffed out like that. But she believes that this God of Israel is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so she takes this opportunity. And there's no second guessing. There's no further interrogation out of these messengers, is there? They just believe what she said, and they go on their way. Rahab is referred to a couple times in our New Testament, and one of them is James 2. And in that chapter out of James, James discusses the importance of of faith that is accompanied by deeds. James famously says that faith without deeds is dead. And so we read in James 2.25, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And so, remarkably, James holds this Rahab, this 
marginalized woman up as a model of faith, of a living and an active faith. And what's crazy is her faith couldn't have been that well-formed. Her faith couldn't have been that well-informed. She hadn't yet heard the law of God. She hadn't yet encountered the law of Moses or the word of God, but she expressed whatever faith was in her, in her actions, and in the risks that she took. So in Rahab's life, her faith is a genuine response, but it's also, as we see, active. It's risky. But lastly, her faith is transformative. Her whole life changes. And for this point, we sort of lean on the rest that we know in Scripture, which is in some way limited, but the rest that we know about Rahab. And we're not told a whole lot other than that she and her family are, in fact, preserved and saved when Jericho is conquered. Joshua 6.25 notes that Rahab and her family, after this conquest, live among the Israelites to this day. But what happens is that this Gentile, Canaanite, marginalized, perhaps broken woman whose livelihood involved selling her body is suddenly grafted into the story of God and into his sovereign plan to live among Israel and to become part of her people. And then what's amazing when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, which lists a genealogy, we find Rahab. We see that Rahab eventually is married to a man named Salmon, or Salah, as other translations have it. And so at some point, this Rahab enters into a marriage relationship. And together they conceive Boaz, great-grandfather of King David, and if you remember, the book of Ruth that we've preached out of in recent years is an upstanding, compassionate, generous man used of God at a difficult time in the life of Israel. And so we don't have a lot of information. It's a little bit limited, but it seems as though her trajectory is a good one, is a transformed one. The story is... Remarkable. It's inspirational. It's commendable. But we're a, a little remiss if we miss the, the, the grander picture of God. What is God doing here? I appreciate what a scholar named Martin Woodstra says in his commentary on Joshua. And he spends a couple pages warning us to be careful to not lose sight of sort of the the, the forest of God's redemptive work for the trees, if you will, of the individual actors involved. Woodstra says a resolute effort should be made to avoid putting mankind in the center. Bible stories tend to be weighted too much on the anthropocentric. Biblical narrative all too often is searched for moral examples that can be followed or shunned, as the case may be. And he says that if we just focus on the characters, whether moral or immoral, depending on the story, he says the uniqueness of the biblical events as instances of God's self-revelation 
is in danger of being overlooked. And so what is that self-revelation? What do we learn? What do we see? What is revealed to us in the Rahab story is that God works in the grittiness of our everyday lives to carry forward his sovereign plan in this world. What is revealed to us is that God has always been and continues to draw perhaps unlikely people into his covenant family and into his kingdom. People from all nations, all peoples, all walks of life, all backgrounds. Maybe you were once that kind of unlikely person that people were praying for. Or maybe that person is your neighbor or your friend or your coworker that God wants to draw into his love and into his kingdom through you. Sometimes we think that God only kind of works with or uses or calls the good people, the put-together people, those who have it together and are pious. Well, the story of Rahab seems to challenge that. You see, God honors Rahab's faith, however uninformed or undeveloped it was. God is always looking for hearts that are open to him. God is looking for people who don't just want to cling to the idols of our culture and the distractions of our culture, but who want to be loyal to him. He uses those who believe in his power. He uses the broken, and that's good news for me and for you. Rahab probably thought her life was a dead end until she found and and encountered this God and his people who were on the move. Rahab may have had a broken starting point, but this faith that she falls into changes her whole life. She's taken up into the story of God. She joins his people. Her family is preserved. And then amazingly, as we see in the genealogy of Matthew, out of her line comes Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And so Rahab's faith is a genuine response. Her faith is active, risky even, and her faith is transformative. But of course, for us, faith still matters. Faith is still key. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But our faith rests in a few things I would say to you. Our faith rests in the fact that God has done it. That in Jesus Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. God has offered us salvation and reconciliation with him. Our faith rests in the fact that God is doing it, that he is still on the move in our world by his spirit, healing and reconciling and transforming and restoring all the time. But also importantly, that God will do it. That God, Jesus Christ, will return to judge the world, to make all things right, to drive away all the evil and the suffering and the sin that we see and to restore a new heaven and a new earth. And so, friends, what in your life is demanding faith right now? What is demanding risk, even? 
Maybe you need faith that God will take you to the next level in your vocation, your calling. He is leading you forward, and it might involve kind of some uncomfortability, stepping out on a limb a little bit to pursue his calling. Maybe you need faith to try to create some changes in your workplace or in your community. Maybe there's dysfunction or conflict that you're observing. God is calling you to faith. Maybe God is calling you to to step up and, and invest your time, your talents, your treasure, whatever it is, in ministry and into the work of the kingdom to supporting others who have an emotional, spiritual, or physical need. Maybe God's calling you to exercise your faith to restore a broken relationship. And he is calling you into his grace for that process. Maybe you need faith that God is calling you to sacrifice some of your time to mentor someone, to disciple someone, or to be mentored, or to be discipled. And in our busy lives, we don't know where it's going to fit sometimes. But God also calls us to lay things down as well. Maybe you need faith to believe for a miracle, physical breakthrough, emotional breakthrough, whatever it may be. And so friends, how is God inviting you to flex your faith these days? As God's word tells us, and as specifically this remarkable story shows us, God welcomes and he honors your faith. And so no matter what your starting point is, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your past has been, God draws us to himself and invites us to partner with him in bringing his kingdom to this world. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this remarkable story. We thank you, Lord, that our faith is in you, a good God who has revealed himself in history. And so, Lord, we treasure your word. Lord, would you help those here who are on a journey toward faith to access the resources they need, to seek the understanding that they need, but to trust you by faith. Help us all with that, Lord. Would you empower us to be your people, living full of faith and full of your spirit in this world. So God, give us courage and give us empowerment. Give us conviction for this. And we know that you're with us till the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.